Stand with me tonight in reverence to God for the reading of our text. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Had the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Although he was in the form of God and equal with God, he did not take advantage of this equality. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, by becoming like other humans, by having a human appearance. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. This is why God has given him an exceptional honor, the name honored above all other names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven and on earth and in the world below will kneel and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The title of my message tonight, The Cup, The Cross, and The Crown. Remain standing and bow with me for a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, have your way, do your work. And Father, when we get to the altar service tonight, I pray, Lord God, that you will cause everybody in this building to drink of the cup of commitment in every area of their life. Lord, as pastor so well put that there will not be any hard clumps of clay on the inside of us, Lord God, but that we will be pliable and receptive in every area of our life so that you can mold us. We will allow you to take every hard clump of clay out of us, Lord God, that we will drink of the cup of commitment wholeheartedly. And Father, I pray and ask you to cause everybody in this building that has need of healing in any area of their life, no matter what it is, Lord God, that you will cause them to drink of the cup of healing tonight. I speak it done in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, and you may be seated tonight. It's been over a hundred years ago now that one of the most distinguished presidents ever to serve in office, Abraham Lincoln, was shot to death April 15, 1865 in Ford Theater in Washington, D.C. Tragedy struck our land. In fact, our nation was paralyzed and sent into shock as a result of this assassination. And I'm told that as they brought his body back to Springfield, Illinois for burial, that they stopped in several cities along the way for memorial services. One stop that they made was Albany, New York, the capital of the state of New York. The streets were jammed and people by the thousands gathered around to get one last glimpse of honest Abe. They climbed up into trees and up on top of tall buildings to get one last look at Abraham Lincoln. And in the midst of all this, there was a very stirring scene that took place that I believe has significance for the message that I'm going to be preaching in this hour. And that is that in that crowd of people, there was a black mama with a, a child not quite two years old. And she couldn't even see into the casket because the crowd was so great. So she took a little boy and she lifted him high into the air above that crowd, facing towards that casket. And with big old tears streaming down her cheeks, she shouted this message to her boy. She said, take a long look, honey, because that man died for you. Take a long look, honey, 
because that man died for you. And when I heard this story about this mama and the compassion that she had for Abraham Lincoln, I couldn't help but think of another scene. And that is the scene of Jesus Christ hanging on the old rugged cross. And I thought to myself, if we as pastors and evangelists and Christian leaders, if we as God's people could take our friends, our family members, our loved ones that are unsaved and lift them high above the sin, the dim, the racket, the noise of this world and shout to them the message that that mama shouted to her boy. Take a long look at Jesus Christ because he died for you. He died for you. That's the message he said in his word. Look unto me and be ye saved. Not just a glimpse. Not just a glance. But a long look is what I want you to take tonight. I want you to drink from the fountains filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Where sinners plunge beneath their blood. That that blood lose all their guilty stains. Jesus said in his word, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. If I can get you to take a long look tonight, not at a pastor or an evangelist or a Christian leader, but if I can get you to take a long look at Jesus Christ, none of you will leave here the same way that you came. If I can get you to fasten your eyes on Jesus and see him not only as a crucified son of God, but as a resurrected Lord, our coming king. If I can get you to see this Jesus in all of his glory and splendor, your life will never be the same. Because I'm going to share some things with you tonight that have changed my life and put my life on a course and direction for Jesus Christ, perhaps as nothing else has. I want you to look at three things in the life and the ministry of our Lord. Three things that are powerful and dramatic. Three things that I want you to take a long look at with me tonight. Hear me. One is the cup. The next is the cross. And the next is the crown. First of all, I want you to take a long look at that cup. Now this cup that I'm referring to is not an ordinary cup. It is not the communion cup as sacred and as reverent as it may be. It is not the cup that you'd find on the shelf of the kitchen cabinet or in the furniture store. It is not a measuring cup or a coffee cup. It is another cup. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 20, 22. He said, are you able to drink from the cup that I am to drink from and to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? Jesus said, are you able to drink From the cup, the one who emptied himself of being the son of God, the one who emptied himself of the kingly robes of heaven and then took upon himself the robes of sinful flesh. One of the things that Jesus talked about in his earthly ministry, Sister Evelyn, was the cup. You remember when Jesus went into Gethsemane's garden and he fell on his knees and he prayed as never a man has prayed before. The Bible says that Jesus prayed in that garden with sweat that came from his body as it were great drops of blood. He fell on his knees and he fell on his face and he prayed with such agony and sorrow of soul. But do you remember what the heart of his prayer was? The heart of his prayer was this. He prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, wait a minute. 
Why wasn't Jesus concerned about the nails or the spike or the spit, the spittle, the spear that would be thrust into his side? Why wasn't Jesus concerned about the crown of thorns that would be rammed on his head? Why wasn't Jesus concerned about the cross? Why wasn't he concerned about his position of power as the only begotten son of the living God or the mock trial before Pilate and Caiaphas? He wasn't praying about any of that. It was the cup that was giving him trouble. It was the cup that was bothering him. It was the cup that he was wrestling and struggling over that was causing him to sweat blood. What was it about that cup? My friend, there is a mystery surrounding that cup that is more vast than the mystery of the incarnation. There is a mystery surrounding that cup that is deeper than the mystery that blankets the black hours when Calvary's lamb hung on that old rugged cross and he cried, they, he cried out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a mystery surrounding that cup that I, no, no the preacher could give you the full impact of it, but tonight... I'm just going to reach down and touch the hem of the garment. This cup that Jesus is wrestling over and, and, and struggling over, you see, for God's Son to be found down here in an earthly garden is wonder enough. But that he should be found in the throes of conflict, wrestling and struggling over a cup is unfathomable. It blows your mind when you try to figure it out. I mean, he whose eyes first reflected the glitter of the sun and he watched the fiery trail of the comet as it went down through boundless space is now shrinking from a cup. He whose mind conceived the universe, calculated a plan for the ages, is now trembling with a cup. He who existed before Abraham and before whom the whole universe shall bend its knee to him. Now he treads the wine press alone and he groans from the depths of bitterest woe and he cries out in that garden on his knees, Oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The mystery of the cup. Fleshly eyes cannot behold it. Finite minds cannot comprehend it. What is the meaning of this cup that Jesus is wrestling and struggling over that is causing him to sweat blood? What is the meaning of it? You see, my friend, this cup contained the sins of all the world. Your sins and mine, every sin of nameless wrong, hatched in the black hearts of hell, every smear of debauchery, every stain of iniquity, it settled like thick black drags deep into the bottom of the cup. A drunken son strangles his tender mother. Drunkenness slinks into the cup. A depraved degenerate snatches a baby from his mother's arms and bashes his brains out against the rocks. The sin of depravity and murder sink into the cup. A blasphemer spits out profanity against God. The sin of profanity climbs into the cup. A lustful young man desecrates a young lady's virtue. The sin of lust and fornication settle in the cup. Every sin that I've ever committed, that you've ever committed, that the whole universe has ever committed, from Adam and Eve all the way down to the last day that the earth shall stand, it was all in that cup, and Jesus drank that cup. The wheels of redemption stand still. 
as the Son of God with trembling fingers raises that cup. But there was more to it than that. Thank God. You remember what he said in 1 Peter 2, 24? By his stripes we were healed. By his stripes we were healed. You see, not only the sins of all the world, yours and mine were in that cup. And Jesus was being forced to drink that cup, drain it to his bitter dregs. But what about all the sickness and disease? You see, the cross of Calvary is not only the shed blood to save us from sin, but on that cross, our Lord, there is healing as well as salvation in the cross. There is healing. By his stripes, we were healed. He sent his word and he healed us. His word is healing and medicine to our body and to our bones. He said that we would lay hands on the sick and they would recover. He said he is Jehovah Rapha, the great physician. Realize then that to get to that cross meant Jesus had to drink that cup. So in that cup was every vile cancer, polio, epilepsy, heart attacks, strokes, growths, tumors, viruses, flu viruses, nervous conditions, everything that taints that cripples the human mind, the human body, the human soul. It was all in that cup. And Jesus drank that cup. And that cup contained all the sins of the adulterer, the drunkard, the dope addict, the harlot, the gambler. It had all of our sins in it. No wonder the wheels of redemption stand still. No wonder the Son of God is sweating blood. But do you think that was all the prayer that Jesus prayed that night? I don't believe it was. I don't believe the gospel writers could have told us everything that Jesus prayed that night in Gethsemane's garden. If those olive trees in Gethsemane's garden had tongues to speak, what would they say? I, I've had the privilege and the honor of, of, of of traveling to Israel and, 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 and being in Israel. And, and there are olive trees in Gethsemane's garden where Jesus prayed that prayer that right now, Sister Evelyn, are, are, are more than 2,000 years old that were there when Jesus prayed that prayer. I couldn't help but feel like I was standing on holy ground as I stood next to an olive tree that was more than 2,000 years old. And I had to stop and ask myself, if this olive tree could talk, if this olive tree could speak, what would it say? If you could say, Olive tree, did the one who created you, did the Son of God, did he pray more than that short prayer that is recorded in three of the four Gospels? Father, take away this cup. Was there more to that short prayer? And I know the Olive tree would respond and say, Oh, that wasn't all of his prayer. No doubt the Olive tree would say, Oh, he groaned. He groaned and he wept and he cried. And he said, Father, why must I drain the dregs of this cup that is so polluted and vile? Why must I who am sinless become sin? Suppose the rolling hills all around Gethsemane's garden could speak. 
And you could ask them, Rolling Hills, did Jesus pray more than that short prayer? I know the Rolling Hills would respond, and they'd say, oh, that wasn't all of his prayer. He prayed, Father, I'm holy like you are. I never even tasted a forbidden fruit. Hear me tonight. Ask the Rolling Hills. Ask the rocks of Gethsemane. Ask the olive trees. Ask all the creation of God that was in the garden that night that Jesus prayed that prayer. And no doubt... They would tell you so much more than what is recorded because it is always abbreviated in Scripture. But our Lord and Savior with trembling fingers, he raised that cup, he raised it up, and he drained it to its bitter dregs. And hear me tonight, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Get the full picture. He drained that cup to its bitter dregs. He leaves the garden in full victory now. The light of triumph is upon his brow. For you see, there is no fear now. For as he leaves that garden, he leaves different than when he entered it. There's no fear, no disturbance. He leaves that garden in full victory. Why? Because you see, in that cup were the nails, the spike, the spit, the spittle, the thorns. It was all in that cup. Hear me tonight. The cross was in that cup and Jesus drank that cup. Do you ever wonder how Jesus was able to stand? This is a big deal. Do you ever wonder how Jesus was able to stand before Pilate and Caiaphas for the mock trial without trembling in fear? It wasn't because he was the son of God. He was in flesh and blood just like you and me, except sinless. It was because, listen, in Gethsemane, Jesus brought himself under submission into the will of God. That's some good stuff right there. In Gethsemane, Jesus drank the cup of surrender and and commitment to the Lord Jesus, to God, that cost him his life on an old rugged cross. Now for the application that goes much deeper than what I've said. Everybody in this building, if you are really, really trying to live for God, I mean really trying to live for God, you're going to go through Gethsemane's in your life. A place where you sweat blood. You're going to have, I don't mean to bust your bubble, but you're going to have more than one. A place where you weep, you pray, you cry, you struggle. What's it over? Hear me, look here. Giving up yourself. Giving up yourself drinking of your own cup of surrender and commitment to Jesus Christ. You see, many people want Calvary shed blood to wash away their sins, but they want to bypass the cup. We want the blood, and we want the benefits of the blood, and the benefits of the cross, but we want to sidetrack Gethsemane where you get on both knees and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, because look here, it will cost you your life to pray that kind of a prayer and really mean it. Most people don't want to give up their lives. People, look here, people want to be saved, but they don't want to be born again. You say, what's the difference? People want to miss hell, but they don't want to change their lifestyle. They want to go on doing as they please, walk as they please, talk as they please, do as they please. Now hear me, listen, if Jesus hadn't settled it in Gethsemane, there would have never been a Calvary. If Jesus hadn't settled it down on his knees in Gethsemane's garden with a kind of a prayer that emptied himself He wouldn't have made it up Calvary's hill. He wouldn't have been able to efface the cross. And hear me tonight, you cannot make it either until you've had a Gethsemane experience. 
That's one where you are emptied of yourself. This is for every pastor, every evangelist, all of God's people as well as the unsaved. You have to go through Gethsemane. You see, each of us have crosses and burdens and trials and turmoil. When you live for God, the devil will come at you, he'll come at me, and he will throw everything at you, including the kitchen sink. (laughs) If you want to find out if the devil is real, all you've got to do is start living for Jesus and he'll get on your trail. Are you having to fight the devil to live for God? If you're not, you better check up and see whose side you're on. One lady stood up at her church and she said, Preacher, she said, I've had to fight the devil all week long to be here tonight. And her husband stood up from the other side of the sanctuary and said, Well, she hadn't been the easiest to live with either. (laughs) She thought he was talking about him. Uh, uh, Listen, uh, uh, I'm not talking about husbands and wives tonight. I'm talking about the old devil, the old slew foot, the one that will give you trouble. The one that will get on your trail and mine, he's the one that you need to give him a message on the soles of your shoes every day. Call him rat face. Give him a punch in the nose and two black eyes every morning when you get up. And the only way, hear me, the only way that you're going to be a match for the devil is for you to get filled with the Holy Ghost and have a Gethsemane experience. A Gethsemane experience. And my prayer is that tonight everybody in this building that's not already been filled with the Holy Ghost is going to get filled with the Holy Ghost. And if you've already been filled, my prayer is that tonight you will allow God to refill you with the Holy Ghost. Hear me. You settle it. Down on your knees in Gethsemane's garden where Jesus did and then the crosses of life will not get you down. They will not defeat you. But without Gethsemane, the benefits of Calvary will never take place. The road to heaven, the road to salvation, the road to you having a productive, fruitful, successful life here on the earth goes, first of all, through Gethsemane. Then it goes to the cross. Drink of the cup, but then go to the cross. He said in his word, for I am God and there is none else. My friend, there is a mystery surrounding what happened on that cross that cannot be explained by mortal tongue. As the Son of God hung on that old rugged cross, and he cried out these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who among us can understand those words from the Son of God hanging on an old rugged cross, those words that he spoke to his Father in heaven? Yes, The word is very clear about this. Hear me. God had forsaken his only son hanging on that old rugged cross. Why? You see, when Jesus hung on that cross, the sins of all the world, yours and mine, they were all upon him. And if God would have looked down at his only son hanging on that tree, how many parents or grandparents do we have here tonight? Raise your hand. Let me ask you a question. What if that would have been your son or your daughter hanging on that cross And you had the power that God has. How many of you with God's power that he has could have left your son or daughter hanging on that old rugged cross without helping them? None of us could have. You know, our our daughters, Miracle Joy and Mariah Faith, when they were born, Miracle Joy weighed one pound. In fact, put her picture up. I think we've got a picture of her. 
Miracle joy. You know, babies, when they're born, they lose a little bit of weight. At one pound, she lost a little bit of weight, and she dropped down to 12 ounces, 12 ounces. In that picture, and, and Sister Evelyn, uh, this church body, uh, 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 whenever you, you and Pastor Pat were, 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 were pastoring, you had your church body praying for these twins while, while they were going through all of what was going on. And, and, but Miracle Joyce, she dropped down to 12 ounces, and, 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 and they had stuck her little body, as you can see in that picture, with so many needles and tubes and tubes running in and out of every part of her body and needles. And, and, and they ran out of places to do an IV, Pastor Heath, and, and so as a result of it, the doctor called my wife and I into the doctor's office, into the hospital, and said, we're going to have to do a central line placement for a normal-sized baby, it's a, a standard procedure, but for a 12-ounce baby, it is a very serious surgery. And we don't know how it's going to turn out. Thankfully, the surgery was a success, but at 3 o'clock in the morning, my wife and I got the dreaded call that you would get, anybody would get, from a doctor. The doctor said at 3 o'clock in the morning, called us and said, we completely lost, completely lost Miracle Joy's heart rate and blood pressure. They said, we, we gave her a shot of a stimulant to bring her back to life, and it did not work. The doctor said we had to use our thumbs and do chest compressions like you would do for a heart patient with, your, with the palms in your hands. Because she weighed 12 ounces, they had to use their thumbs. And they said, we did chest compressions on Miracle Joy, and we were able to bring her back to life, but we don't know how long she's going to last. You need to rush to the hospital as quickly as you can. So my wife and I, got to the hospital, and in the NICU at Woman's Hospital in Baton Rouge, we walked in there, and there laid Miracle Joy. Her body was glazed over, and she was, she was gray, and she just looked like death warmed over. And like any dad would want to do in this building, any dad, I did, I, I, I reached over to touch Miracle Joy to comfort her. And when I tried to, to touch her, the doctor grabbed me by the wrist and said, now, now, Brother Todd, you cannot, not only can you not hold Miracle Joy, because we could not even hold Miracle Joy until she was two and a half months old. He said, not only can you not hold Miracle Joy, but if you touch her right now after everything just, just happened over the past several hours, it could cause her to go into a cardiac arrest, so don't even touch her. So here I am, a daddy with my daughter, I'm looking at her on that, uh, in, in that NICU, in that, in that hospital bed, with tubes running in and out of every part of her body and needles running in and out of every part of her body, including her head, wanting to touch her and, and to, to comfort her. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. And God said, Tim, this is just a fraction of what it was like for what I had to do to leave my son hanging on that old rugged cross without helping him. And God said, Tim, you've got several children. I only have one son. Now, I'm happy to report that Miracle Joy, and she's a twin. Miracle Joy is 21 years old now. If you ever go into Chick-fil-A in uh, West Monroe, Louisiana, you will uh, 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 probably see her working there at Miracle, Miracle Joy, uh, working at uh, Chick-fil-A. And her sister, uh, Mariah Faith, is uh, uh, 21 years old, her twin sister. And there, here's a picture of them right there. And they are 21 years old now. Listen to me. They're completely healed with no physical problems whatsoever. Somebody give the Lord a hand of praise for that. Amen? Amen. 
Thank you, brother, and you can take that picture down now. But none of us can comprehend the love of God, the love that God had for his only son hanging on that cross. And I'm convinced that the reason why God turned his back on his only son hanging on that old rugged cross is so that he wouldn't have to turn his back on you and me. When you come to give your life to him, come to be saved, come to be forgiven, because I'm convinced that if God would have looked down at his only son hanging on that tree, that the long arm of God would have reached across time and eternity. He would have ripped those nails, that spike out of his hands and his feet. He would have lifted that crown of thorns off of his head that the Son of God would have been born into the arms of God back into heaven where he really belonged. God turned his back on his only Son so that he wouldn't have to turn his back on you and me. Let that drive through your heart like a spike nail, mister, lady. Let that drive through your heart like a spike nail, young person. God turned his back on his only begotten son hanging on that old rugged cross so that he wouldn't have to turn his back on you and me. He cried from that cross. And there was a darkness that fell in midday. What was happening? The darkness. The window shades of heaven were being pulled. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died on that cross to save you from hell. And when Jesus went to that cross, it was the same as him going to hell for you. Hear me tonight. Jesus went to hell for you on that cross. And you'll notice that the things that Jesus is saying from that cross are the very thing, same things that the people of hell are saying. Jesus said, I thirst. Is that not what the rich man said in Luke chapter 16? In hell he left up his eyes being in torment. He seeth Abraham afar off, Lazarus in his bosom. He cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. That's the cry of the people of hell. Matthew 8, 12 says that in hell, watch this, there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place where God has been forsaken. And no doubt tonight as I preach in this building, people all over hell are screaming out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus went to hell for you on that cross. It was as if an eternity of hell was compressed into six electrifying hours, put into a red-hot blanket, and wrapped around the Son of God. An eternity of hell was experienced in six hours as the Son of God hung on that old rugged cross. Take a long look at that cross. There's more there than meets fleshly eyes. There was an earthquake. Was there any meaning or significance to that earthquake that took place as Jesus hung on that cross? You better believe it. You remember when they had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem? And the people uh, uh, gathered with their palm branches. And they, they were praising and glorifying Jesus as he rode that donkey down the street. And you remember the religious hypocrites approached Jesus. And they said, hey, teacher, you want us to tell these people in the church service to be quiet and not make so much noise in the service and, 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 and be uh, 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 glorifying and magnifying you out loud? You remember what Jesus said? He said, no. Don't tell these people to be quiet and hold their peace because if they hold their peace, he said, the very rocks will cry out. Now, think about that. He said that if you don't, he said, if we don't worship God, the rocks will cry out. Now, now, now fast forward to when Jesus hung on that cross, suspended between heaven and earth. 
The people had withheld their hosannas, their praises, and their hallelujahs at a time when the voices of men and women and young people were not praising God and glorifying God out loud. It was then that the rocks began to cry out and all heaven broke loose. You see, when they took that old rugged cross with Jesus hanging on it, and they lifted it high into there, and they dropped it into the earth. It was like a sharp knife being stabbed deep into the belly of the earth. And the earth is the creation of God. Now think about that. The earth's creator was hanging on the cross that he made on the world that was made by him. And when they took that old rugged cross with Jesus hanging on it, and they lifted it high into the air, and they dropped it into the earth, it was like a, a, a mighty earth. The ground began to shake with a mighty earthquake. Gabriel and 12 legions of angels hovered over the realm of the universe. And all Jesus would have had to have done, hanging limp on that cross, would have been to have lifted his head and given a nod. And at his command, Gabriel and 72,000 angels, swords unsheathed, would have come down and swept those shouting, those howling multitudes of people straight into hell where they really belong. But instead, Jesus went to hell for you on that cross. Oh, what a Savior. Now for another application. When we hold our voices, when we fail to praise and glorify God out loud, when we come to church and look like look at somebody like they've got something out of joint because of the way that they're worshiping God, my friend, if you won't shout as hallelujahs, if you won't lift your voice to him, God said he'll cause the rocks to cry out and praise his name. Hear me, Sanctuary Family Worship Center. Don't let the rocks do something God wants you to do and me to do. Take a look at the cup and drink ye all of it. Take a look at the cross and see what was happening there. And then finally, take a look at that crown. When they hauled Jesus down off of that cross, they laid him in a borrowed tomb. And the reason it was a borrowed tomb is because he wasn't going to need it very long. He wasn't going to need it very long. And Jesus blazed a trail from that cross all the way to the crown. It was a bloodstained trail. That blood was not the blood of any animal. Oh, no. That blood was the blood of the only begotten Son of the living God. Nor the blood like it. Listen to these lines. A dog with food to his collar bound tight was sent to seek a lost traveler one night. For hours he kept faithfully searching over the snow, obedient to his master who commanded him to go. Finally on the snow, he found his man, and to restore his consciousness, earnestly he began. The man was benumbed from lying on the snow, so the dog began to shake him to and fro. A wolf thought the man as it came to life, so he very cautiously reached for his knife. With it, he struck, and he pierced the dog's side. Immediately, the dog started home with feeble stride. Upon reaching his master's door, he dropped with a thud. But behind him, that dog left a trail of blood. A trail to him that had used the knife. But to make that trail, that dog gave his life. I'm reminded of one that God sent from above. He came to seek and save the lost. He came in mercy and in love. But he's a devil and a blasphemer, ignorant men cried. Then they nailed him to the cross and they pierced his side. 
But God turned tragedy into victory that day. And now man need no longer lose his way. For Christ made a trail left by his door to guide men safely up to heaven's door. And the scriptures declare and say therein that only Christ's blood can cleanse from sin. And he that tries to enter up another way is a thief and a robber, so the scriptures say. Yes, Jesus left a trail of blood. From that cross all the way to the crown. Let's get it straight tonight. The crown that our Lord received was not the crown of thorns that men made and are still making and putting on the brow of the Son of God. The crown that our Lord received was not made by men. You remember what he said in Hebrews 2, 9? He said, For unto him that was made a little lower than the angels under suffering and death, now hath God Crown him, crown him with glory and honor. The crown that our Lord received must have been the crown that God gave his only son when he came back from his mission here on the earth. All right, now let's just be real. Can you fathom what happened in heaven when Jesus got home? I mean, if you'll let your exegetical imagination roam a little bit, you'll see that they must have had the biggest parade, the biggest processional that heaven could ever have. I mean, marching and shouting up and down the streets of glory. There must have been all kinds of shouting when Jesus got back to heaven from here on the earth. It would be hard to imagine what the heavenly host did. Then, I can see the Son of God walking up to his Father that loves him so. And I can see Father God reaching over into heaven's treasure chest, pulling out the most beautiful crown that heaven could ever make and crowning his only son, Lord of all, Lord of all, Lord of all. I can hear the heavenly host singing it. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, crown him, Lord of all, Lord of all, Lord of all. Take a long look at that cup, at that cross, at that crown. You know, with America's gospel that's so popular today in so many of our churches, we all want the crown. And we all want the benefits of the cross. But hear me tonight, it all starts with the cup of commitment. Now some will take that cup and they'll take a little sip out of it. Some will drink a couple of swallows. Some will even drink half of it. But it's not until, as Jesus said to his disciples and to you and me, drink ye all of it. Drink ye all of it. That means that it will, listen, it will cost you your life to follow Jesus Christ, to be his disciple. Nothing less will do. You see, the hardest thing for you to give up is not your money. The hardest thing for you to give up is yourself. We don't want to give up ourselves. We don't want to put Jesus in the driver's seat of our life. Now, isn't it true that a commitment is imperative with everything else in life and it most certainly is essential in your walk with God? Is that true? A marriage without a commitment won't last. There has to be a commitment on the part of the husband and wife, a commitment to each other, and a commitment to your marriage vows. Is that true? Without a commitment, your, your marriage will fail. Without a commitment, you will fail in a friendship. Without a commitment, you will fail uh, uh, at school, young person, whether it's in grade school, high school, college. 
unless you're committed to your studies and to what you're studying to be. You will fail as a student. On your job, if you're not committed to your work, you will, you will soon lose your job. And without a commitment to Jesus Christ, which is drinking of the cup of surrender, you will never amount to anything for God. I'm never going to. I'm not just telling you words up here. I've had to fight the devil tooth and toenail to be standing here right now. And I know that Pastor Heath and Beth have fought the devil every inch of the way to be where they are for God too. Many of you have done the same thing. Hear me. It's the cup. You've got to drink of the cup. Not a sip. Not a swallow. Not half of it. But you've got to take it and turn it up and drain it to its bitter dregs. A 10-year-old girl came forward in a revival in Enterprise, Alabama and got down on her knees, Pastor Heath, and began to weep profusely. And I thought, I, I, I need to go pray for her. No telling what's wrong. And I put my arm around this precious young lady, and I said, young lady, I, I want to pray with you. What have you come forward for? This young lady, with her lips quivering, 10 years old, looked at me, and she said, Brother Todd, I've come to renew my commitment to Jesus Christ. And when she said that, I thought, we all need to do that every day. You need to have a commitment to Jesus Christ that is so rock solid that you'd be willing to lay down your life to keep it. And that kind of commitment is not going to be moved if company comes when it's time to go to church or if it rains on Sunday morning or any other time, if you have really had a Gethsemane experience. That's one where you are stripped of yourself. Listen to these lines. They barred a bed to lay his head when Christ the Lord came down. They barred a beast from the far, far east for him to ride to town. But the crown that he wore and the cross that he bore were his own. The cross was his own. He bawled the bread when the crowd that he fed on the grassy mountainside. He bawled the dish of broken fish with which he satisfied. But the crown that he wore and the cross that he bore were his own. The cross was his own. He bawled the ship in which to sit to teach the multitudes. He bawled and asked for him a rest. He never had a home so rude. But the crown that he wore and the cross that he bore were his own. The cross was his own. He barred a room on the way to the tomb for the passion lamb to eat. He barred a cave for him a grave. He barred a winding sheet. But the crown that he wore and the cross that he bore were his own. The cross was his own. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The crown on his head was worn in my stead. For me the Savior died. For the guilt of my sins the nails ripped in when Christ they crucified. Though the crown that he wore and the cross that he bore were his own, they rightly were mine. They rightly were yours. Yes, Jesus drank a cup with our sins in it, not his. Jesus drank a cup with the sickness and disease in it, of yours and mine in it, not his. He went to a cross that rightfully belonged to us, not him. And he built a bridge over hell made out of that old rugged cross so that now if you go to hell, you're going to have to wade through the blood of Jesus to get there. You're going to have to climb over the old rugged cross to get to a place that God never intended for you to go to. I come back to it one more time and then I close. This building is your Gethsemane and mine. It will be the Gethsemane for many of you sitting here right now. You see, Gethsemane is not just a garden anymore. Gethsemane is a place of decision, 
a place of decision where you make that all-out choice or that choice to go all out for God. My prayer is that when you leave here tonight, that your commitment to Jesus Christ will be so rock solid that you will take that cup and drink it. Not a sip, not a swallow, not half of it, but that you will turn it up and drain it to its bitter dregs. Then, after you've denied yourself, you're ready to take up the cross and follow him. Bow your heads, close your eyes, open your hearts all over the building. I believe that there are some here tonight that you have failed to take that cup of commitment and drink it wholeheartedly. You see, I believe that there are some of you tonight, you see, the Lord is not just looking for people who will die for him. But more important than that, Jesus is looking for people who will live for him. Sometimes dying for him would be easier than denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. And you die daily when you get down on your knees and pray the prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane's garden. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. It cost Jesus his life on an old rugged cross, and it will cost you your life in a commitment to him. If you're here tonight, and you say, Brother Todd, I'm in this building, and I need to drink of the cup of commitment because my heart is not right with the Lord. Perhaps at one time you faithfully served God, but you realize tonight that you're not faithfully serving God. You say, I need to take that cup of commitment and I need to drink it wholeheartedly and drain it to its bitter dregs. You say, I realize that my, my commitment to the Lord, my heart is not right with the Lord. My commitment, I need to take that cup and, and drink it, that cup of commitment and drink it. If that's you tonight, you say, my heart is not right with the Lord, but I want it to be. Pray for me. Slip your hand up all over the building. Several hands. Who else? You'd say, that's me. Who else? You'd say, that's me. Who else? You'd say, that's me. Now put your hands down, and let me ask you another question. Several raised their hand to get their heart right with the Lord. But I've got another question for everybody in this building. How many of you would be honest enough to admit You'd say, Brother Todd, I need to drink of that cup of commitment either in my daily prayer life, it's not where it needs to be. Or you'd say, I need to drink of that cup of commitment in my devotion time in the Word of God or my, my church attendance or my giving or my tithing or the way that I worship God or, or don't worship God. I need to drink of the cup of commitment tonight in my soul winning or some other area, perhaps, whatever it is, you'd say, there's at least one area or more that I need to take that cup of commitment and turn it up and drain it to its bitter dregs that God is dealing with me about tonight. If that's you tonight, and you'd be honest enough to admit that, slip your hand up all over the building. You'd say, that's me. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's an area. It's the area that God is going to help you with tonight. Amen. I want every one of you that raised your hand in either of those two areas to stand to your feet. Stand, please. If you raised your hand, stand to your feet all over the building. In a moment, we're going to come to this altar. 
And here's what I'd like to do. I just feel a reverence in this place. Uh, the, I feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place tonight. I believe that God would have us to make a Gethsemane around this altar and get on our knees and cry out to God.